churches are filled with people who are happy to be religious as long as it doesn't infringe on their own right to self-rule, as long as it doesn't conflict with their own personal agenda. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Is there more to the Christmas story than you know? Who exactly are the wise men from the East? And what is their significance in the story of Jesus? Well, hello, I'm Bill Wright. And today, Tom begins a new four-part series titled, Let Earth Receive Her King. In the Christmas story and the entire Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented as the promised Messiah and the only rightful king. He's the king of the Jews. He is the king of all the earth. He is the king of every man. Make no mistake, Jesus is the main character in this story. But there are some very intriguing characters also found in this remarkable story. And Tom, for those of us familiar with the Christmas story, what can we expect to learn from this series? The remarkable story of the wise men is not a story that only happens in the first century AD. It's really a story that predates the birth of Christ by hundreds of years. And it comes to its culmination in this passage. What we're going to learn together is that God has been and is actively working in human history to reveal His Son as history's main character. Do you understand that when we look at the Christmas story or when we look at all of human history, Jesus is the only hero. My question to you is, as we anticipate this Christmas season, is that how you think of Jesus Christ? And are you prepared in this season to give him the gift of your heart of worship? Thanks, Tom. And friend, uh, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Verse 1 says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, we discovered that the Magi were not, in fact, at the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day 2,000 years ago, in spite of all of our nativity sets and all of our wonderful Christmas songs. They actually arrived likely somewhere between 40 days after his birth and less than two years after his birth. So the story's setting is pretty straightforward. We, we also looked last time at the supporting cast. I pointed out to you, and it's really important for you to understand, that Jesus himself is the main character of the story. But next to him, the Magi are the key characters. So who were these men? Again, verse 1 simply introduces them as Magi from the East who arrived in Jerusalem. By the way, Magi is the correct pronunciation, so that's why I'm using it with you, uh, in case it sounds strange to you. These men, the Magi, were in fact members of a Persian priestly caste who were teachers of science and religion. In science, they studied astronomy and medicine, mathematics and philosophy. Their religion was Zoroastrianism, they were pagan idolaters who were involved in practices that the Old Testament clearly forbids, practices such as astrology, divination, 
But this cast, these men, likely came and were part of God's providential direction in the birth of his son because they had one unique duty, even in their home country, and that was to anoint future kings. And that's why they factor so prominently in the story of the birth of Jesus. Now, why did they come? Well, verse 2 tells us that they came with this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw star in the east and have come to worship him. They weren't coming for the birth of just any king. They weren't looking for the man who would succeed Herod the Great. No, they understood something more to be involved here, and this becomes clear down in verse 4. Because when Herod hears about their questions and their arrival, Herod begins to inquire of the spiritual leaders of the nation, notice verse 4, where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. So these men, the wise men, had come to Jerusalem because they were convinced that Israel's divine Messiah, the one who had been promised in the Old Testament, the one who would rule the world, that he had been born. Now, how would they have known? How did they even know about the Messiah? Well, again, as we discovered last time, for 600 years since the Babylonian captivity, devout Believing Jews had lived among the Babylonians, where these men likely came from, and had shared with them their scriptures and the promise of a coming Messiah. And I also think it's impossible to overestimate the impact that Daniel had, who, remember, became ultimately the prime minister of Babylon. And, of course, his prophecy, as we noted last time, has so much to say about the Messiah. And so they understood so much as a result of that influence. Now, all of that was really just our introduction last week. On this Christmas morning, I want us to come to the heart of this remarkable story. You see, these men showed up in Jerusalem and announced the birth of the King of the Jews, specifically the Messiah, and the rest of the story focuses on the responses of people to Jesus as king. The primary ways that people respond to the biblical Jesus in all times and in all places, even as they did after his birth. In fact, think of it this way, this account serves as a kind of mirror in which each of us can see ourselves. You are in the story. I am in the story because we see ourselves reflected in the responses of the people of that day to Jesus and his birth as king. So let's consider then the responses that were then and measure ourselves against them. First of all, consider the typical responses to Jesus as king. We could say the typical sinful responses to Jesus as king. First of all, the the typical response of most, we could simply call settled indifference. Settled indifference. Notice verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, 
Now, the word saying and the flow of this story is a very interesting uh, part of how this unfolds because the verb saying makes it clear that this wasn't a question they asked one time. This was a question they asked repeatedly. Now, why is that? Because they didn't go immediately to Herod. Their first meeting with Herod doesn't come to verse 7. Instead, you'll notice verse 3 says, Herod heard about the wise men. That implies that he heard about them secondhand. So instead of going to meet with Herod, when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, they went about the city inquiring among the people. And the response of the people of Jerusalem was settled indifference. Jerusalem's population at that time, not at feast times when the population swelled, but in normal normal periods of time throughout the year, historians tell us about 80,000 people lived in Jerusalem. It was not a small city by ancient standards. But not one person from the entire city seemed interested in whether these men had actually found Israel's rightful king. The Magi showed up announcing the birth of the Messiah. And the people of Jerusalem didn't know anything about it and frankly didn't seem to care too much. You can see why this response is true in all times. Our world is filled with people on this very Christmas day who are either ignorant of their rightful king or utterly indifferent to him. They have holiday meals to prepare. They have parties to attend. They have family gatherings to enjoy. They have creatively found a way to celebrate Christmas while ignoring Jesus Christ and his right to be their king. My question to you this morning is, is this a reflection of you? Do you find yourself in this response of most of the people in the city of Jerusalem? Do you live your own life blissfully indifferent to your king? The reasons for that are many, but I think the root cause is always the same. It's because people have no real sense of their own sinfulness and their own need. If you're diagnosed with life-threatening cancer, everything else pales in comparison. Everything else becomes relatively unimportant as you fight that disease. Because it threatens your life. Your life is at risk. The same thing is true spiritually. When you come to understand your real spiritual situation and condition, then you're willing to come to the person who can treat it. But but because most people are unaware of their true spiritual danger, they remain indifferent to the only one who can rescue them. One typical response to Jesus is shown by the people of Jerusalem in that day, settled indifference toward our rightful king. A second typical sinful response is the response of the religious We'll call it religious distraction. Look at verse 4. Herod, in verse 3, after he hears the report of these men, and we'll deal more with him in a moment, but he gathered together, in verse 4, all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he began to inquire of them where the Christos, where the Messiah, the Anointed One, was to be born. 
Herod calls together a high convocation. The chief priest mentioned here included the ruling high priest of the time, all former high priests, those who had previously served, as well as the heads of the 24 courses of the priests and key members of, of other noble families there in Jerusalem. In other words, these were the political leaders of the nation. And the scribes, mentioned also in verse 4, these were the spiritual leaders of the nation. They're the ones who copied the Scripture, who studied the Scripture, and who taught it to the people. So Herod then assembles this prestigious group and asks them if the Scripture teaches where the Messiah was to be born. Notice verse 5. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What I want you to see is that the religious and political leaders of the nation, these these religious leaders, they knew the right answer. In fact, they quoted from two key Old Testament passages. The primary one is in Micah 5.2, where the prophet Micah tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, where Jesus was in fact born through divine providence. And, and then they ended their quotation with another significant passage from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. They knew the scripture, they knew the right answer, they knew about the Messiah. But did you notice what the religious leaders didn't do? They didn't seek out the wise men, and they didn't send an official delegation just six miles south to Bethlehem to investigate. One commentator, Bill Mounts, writes this, the religious leaders of Jerusalem know from their own scriptures where the Messiah is to be born. But not even the visit of foreign dignitaries piques their curiosity enough to travel six miles to Bethlehem to find out if there's any truth in the report. Six miles. They just kept studying the scriptures. Ironically, the very scriptures that prophesied of this child. They just kept morning and evening offering their sacrifices. Again, ironically, the very sacrifices that pointed to the great sacrifice that the Messiah himself would make. They were busy with their religious duties and their religious practices, but they completely ignored their rightful king. They were too busy with their religion. This is the response of many to Jesus. Even on this day, churches around our country are filled with people, and in many cases, there are people like this. There may be some like this here this morning. There are people who replace true submission and obedience to their king with some version of religion and religious activity. On this very day, churches are filled with people who are happy to be religious as long as it doesn't infringe on their own right to self-rule, as long as it doesn't conflict with their own personal agenda. From Scripture, they know much about their rightful king, but they refuse to submit their daily lives 
to his rule. There's a real warning here in these religious leaders. Martin Luther put it this way, the scribes should be a warning to all religious teachers in the pulpit, the Sunday school, the family, because they told others where to find the Savior, but did not go to him themselves. You see, you can claim the Christian faith, you can faithfully attend church, you can show up on a Christmas morning service, you can know your Bible, you can know all the things about the Messiah, about your rightful king, and be just as lost as the religious leaders of Jesus' time were. The question is this, have you ever truly acknowledged Jesus' right to rule your life? And do you live in subjection to your king? Jesus asked it this way, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That makes no sense. No one responds to their king like that. A third typical response to Jesus as king is shown in the response of Herod. We'll call it selfish defiance. Selfish defiance. Notice verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, heard the the story of the Magi, and they're moving around the city asking questions about the Messiah, notice verse 3, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. It was in the year 40 B.C. that Rome placed Herod over Palestine. It took him three years to crush all the opposition to his rule, but in the year 37 B.C., he became supreme ruler over the land of Israel. This man would later come to be called Herod the Great. He was called the Great not so much because of his military achievements, but because of his architectural ability. He was a builder. He built magnificent cities like the beautiful port city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean. Some of us have had the opportunity to visit there and and see the the incredible skills that that he had in, in organizing and making sure those things were built. He built incredible palaces like Masada. But his crowning achievement was the Temple Mount and the temple, rebuilding the temple on it. He took the hill that was the natural hill and slope there in the middle of Jerusalem and he built a false platform over it. It came to be called the Temple Mount. You can still go on top of it today. 35 acres, where up to 400,000 people could gather on the feast days. And in the middle of that, that huge false platform, he built this magnificent temple, 50 yards high by 50 yards wide at its face. A massive building. Herod the Great. While he may have been great in his architectural skills, when it came to his personal life, he was a demon in human form. Herod had ten wives and more than a dozen children. By his own account, the wife that he loved most was named Mariamne. But in spite of that fact, driven by his own paranoia, he secretly had her brother and her grandfather killed. Later, he came to suspect her of infidelity, and he had her killed, and then her two sons, and then her mother. 
Here, of course, in Matthew 2, he ordered the execution of all the male babies two years of age and younger in Bethlehem and its environs, probably 20 to 25 children under the age of two. In 4 B.C., in 4 B.C., after this incident here in Matthew 2, and just five days before his death, he had his favorite son executed because he was afraid he would usurp the throne sooner than Herod's death. Just to show you the kind of man he was, as he neared death, he ordered that hundreds of the leading Jewish people of the land, the, the aristocrats, the nobility, that hundreds of them be arrested and incarcerated, and then on the day of his death, he ordered that they be executed. His reason? So that on the day of his death, there would be true mourning in the land of Israel. Fortunately, his orders on that front were disobeyed. Clearly, this man was insanely paranoid about losing his position. And rightly so, because Herod was not Jewish. He was Idumean. His father was an Edomite. In fact, he was a descendant of Esau and not Jacob. He had connived and flattered and bribed and fought his way into his position in Israel. By the time the Magi arrived, he was about 69 years old and he had reigned for 35 years. 25 years before this story, the Roman Senate had conferred this title on Herod the king of the Jews. Now you understand Herod's reaction to the Magi. Verse 3 says, when, king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That means, the, the Greek word means to be stirred up, to be in a state of inner turmoil. Of course, because he faced the very real risk of losing his own personal empire that he'd spent his entire life building. Verse 3 goes on to say, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. For 25 years, the Jews in Jerusalem had learned to be troubled when Herod was because it would invariably mean trouble for them. Now, Herod had never been one to wait for events to take their own course, and so he launched a plan. He knew where the Messiah was born. He'd already learned that from the religious leaders. It was in Bethlehem, but he needed to know who the Messiah was. And the easiest way for him to find out would be to use the Magi. Herod was a user. This was always his course of action, and he's going to use them. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, and he ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Herod sent a secret message to the wise men and then met with them in secret as well. Why? Because he's covering his tracks. He's already decided what he's going to do. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. Now don't miss the drama of this statement. When you read the Scripture, always read it with a, with a bit of, um, of inspired sort of imagination as you put yourself in this situation. Think about what Herod now knows. Herod knew that this king 
was the one promised in the Old Testament and that he was divinely chosen, unlike Herod. He also knew that this was Israel's Messiah, the one prophesied in the Hebrew Scripture. But Herod was so concerned about his own agenda that he just didn't care. He was willing to do whatever it took to get what he wanted, even if it meant killing the Messiah. At the same time, he pretended an interest in spiritual things when it served his advantage. Notice verse 8. When you found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Let Earth Receive Her King. Tom will bring you part two next time, and we hope you'll join us then. What does the Bible say about church membership? In Tom Pennington's book, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member, he identifies three non-negotiable hallmarks that should characterize every church member. Tom will challenge you to assess your own church membership to determine if you're meeting those hallmarks, not only for the health of your church, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music